munchkins. Who brought them? Fine. Wow. But look at the relatively healthy thing you're eating. <laughs> Don't worry, I will make my way to uh, <laughs> dessert. Relatively healthy. <laughs> Are you a blogger professor? Yeah. Oh. I'm a blogger professor. <laughs> One of them. Thank really you. Comma in there. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> you, you've never sat this close. You're just going wild? That is awesome. <laughs> wow. going to be able to see the <laughs> You just weren't... Eye contact. <laughs> All right, so, yeah. Um, is later better? <laughs> what would be perfect for you? Eleven thirty, but I can't. <laughs> um, I just want to do what's best for the person who doesn't seem to be able to come to this class. Um, I should contact well, that person. Let's have it in her dorm. I mean, their dorm. <laughs> in whatever whatever person or person's dorm room that is. Um, I doubt it. Okay. Um, uh, so we were scratching the surface of book one. Um, has everyone now read books one and two? <laughs> Is that a resounding yes? You nodded, okay. Because um, it'll be on the exam. Right. At 1230. On, on books one and two. Yeah. <laughs> and the memorization of books one and two. <laughs> um, all right, look, this is your chance. It used to be, we actually changed the English major here like six years ago. Um, and one of the reasons we changed it, which I disagreed with, was that they did surveys of graduating seniors and... Um, the one thing the graduating seniors said was there were just too many classes where they had to read all Paradise Lost. Um, which, like, I mean, that seems like a feature, not a bug, because it's not like they were rereading it for every class in which Paradise Lost was assigned. Oh my goodness, I haven't read it since last semester. I better just sit down and read the whole thing again. Um, so they may have gone too far the other way, um, because now very few graduating seniors have read all of Paradise Lost. Um, and yet, Paradise Lost is um, the greatest non-dramatic poem in English. Um, by non-dramatic poem, I mean the greatest thing not written by Shakespeare in English. Um, and um, it's a thing. It's a thing. Shakespeare wrote 38 things or more, depending on how you count. Um, but Paradise Lost is <coughs> So this is your chance, um, especially those of you graduating, Taylor. Um, have you read it in anything else, in any other class? I've never read How to Read Paradise Lost in any other class. Okay, see? And if you graduated <coughs> seven years ago, you would have read it in like Five, eight of the nine times. classes that... <laughs> Are you doing Ovid in Kimmelman? Yeah, we did, um, not Ovid, we did um, Antigone, Oedipus, um, we did Sophocles, we did uh, the Apology, and we did um, the Iliad.
Mm-hmm. Okay. But, but very briefly, we spent, I think, in, uh, we spent <coughs> seven weeks on the book of Genesis. We spent one week on the Iliad. See, that's a department thing. <laughs> that's a home department of the person teaching that course thing. He asked us at the end of the semester what we would change, and I, I said... We, would, we should cut down the biblical stuff and work on more of the actual Western canon. I hope he said, said it anonymously. No, no. <laughs> no. Whoa. And he said, well, you got, he said, you have to pick one thing. <laughs> one thing to change yeah. instead of the entire course. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's everything you did in that course you could spend all semester on, right? But um, if you're not going to spend all semester on it, um, I'm not sure that seven times as long on Genesis even though it's true and the Iliad isn't. But I'm not sure that seven times as long on it is um, the best um, introduction to everything that matters. Um, okay, then. Um, awesome, but you didn't do Ovid. You didn't do anything Latin. No, we didn't. Okay. And you didn't get to Paradise Lost. When I teach that course, we end with Paradise Lost. He made, he made us aware of the apple pun in Latin, the fact he was very adamant. Malo, 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 malo. Yeah. Anytime anyone called it the, the forbidden, the apple, he would flip out. Fruit! Right. Might Fruit! Been, might have been an apricot. Or an apricot. <laughs> <laughs> or a potato or a potato. Um, okay. It's acor- according to some midrash, it's actually an esrog. Is this Greek to you? Um, do you know what midrash is? No. Yeah, it's a Hebrew thing. <laughs> Seven weeks of Genesis. Yeah, it's, it's a Hebrew thing. You wouldn't understand. Um, Hebrew uh, school is a long time. Um, um, do you know what an esrog is? All right. Well, anyhow, if if you want to sound impressive, you can just say, well, according to the Midrash I've read, it might have been an esrog, and people will say, whoa. Um, <laughs> Uh, Midrashim are the legends that surround the um, biblical stories. And, um, for example, we talked about one earlier, um, namely um, Lilith. Um, and there is uh, there are all sorts of stories that supplement the stories, especially holes in them, um, because there are a lot of holes in the biblical story. And because it's true, there must be something that um, filled those holes up. And the midrashim um, are comments and and legends and various other things that that fill them up. Um, so according to one of them, the fruit it's not an apple. The word apple it was translated as apple because apple used to be the generic word for fruit in English, hence pine apple, which is in no way like an apple. Um, and then later, apple became what we call an apple. Um, so. Um, it's simply the forbidden fruit. No one really knew what the fruit was. But on Sukkot, um, which is a Jewish holiday, um, one thing that um, you do is you have a kind of spiced orange. There are oranges that are pierced with cloves um, that you hang in the Sukkot, and that's called an esrog. And um, so some people think that was actual. I mean, they don't, no one really thinks this, but it's a fun story to think that the fruit, the, the forbidden fruit actually was a combination of orange and clove, all spiced and very tempting. Um, and that's not Milton's view. Um, but Milton, when he uses the word apple, he means fruit. He's not, he doesn't believe that it's an apple. Um, the pun, malo, 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 which is only a pun if you mispronounce some of those malos, is um, I would rather be, malo means I would prefer, 
in an apple tree, because Molo can also mean in an apple tree, um, than a naughty boy that is then a Molo, a male figure who is naughty, um, Molo in a bad situation. Um, so the Latin M-A-L-O, 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 Malo, 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 is in um, the, turn, the opera of The Turn of the Screw um, by Benjamin Britten. Um, the Miles, um, whose name is Britten is taking as a kind of pun on Malo, sings it as, I would rather be in an apple tree than a naughty boy in adversity. Um, so that's a translation of that. So if you forget about Midrashim and Esrog, you can just remember, just repeat Malo four times um, in some situation that calls upon you to do that. <laughs> um, there's another one. Anyone take Latin? Um, so can you translate mea pater mater mala est? Oh my gosh. Um, no, it's a, it's a trick translation also. One more time. <laughs> Mea pater mater mala est. That's okay. My father, mother, my father, mother is evil. Okay, so the problem is mea pater makes no sense because mea is feminine, yes. but pater is masculine. But uh, someone in Rome would immediately understand what you meant was come father, because mea can be the imperative of come rather than my. Come father, mater, that is mother, Mala, accusative plural, apples, est, eats. So it actually means come father, mother is eating apples. Um, so that's paradise lost in a nutshell, except there's no child to call Adam to say that Eve is eating the apple. Um, all right, so these are trick questions that you will now never fall for. And <laughs> this will be important at some point in your lives, I am sure. Um, okay, so the question that we ended with um, on Friday was um, the difference between justifying the ways, justifying the ways of God to man, or justifying to man the ways of God. And um, the difference between those questions is that if you justify the ways of God to man, you lose something, which is the idea of God's justice overall. Um, that is, what Milton is taking as his task is not saying that God is just to snails or that he's just to fallen angels um, or to rebel angels. Um, the word justify there means show the justice of. Um, when you justify yourself, you're saying, you're saying no, 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 there, it's, it, there's a reason that I'm handing in the paper today. You told me I could have till today, so screw you. So you're justifying yourself. Um, and to justify what someone else has done is to show that what, they're, what they've done is in no way wrong. Um, you can have justified outrage. That means we know that in general outrage is bad, but if someone has really treated you wrongly, then your outrage can be regarded as just. Um, so the word justify means to show um, the justice of. Now, if you justify the following thing, the ways of God to man, if Milton takes that as his brief, then what he's saying is, I don't have to show that God is just. 
I only have to show that as far as we're concerned, we have no complaints. Um, there may be other complaints, but I'm not actually going to adjudicate <coughs> them. Um, now, that's a little bit of a hardish reading because the first two books about Paradise Lost and many other books about Paradise Lost really are about God's ways to angels and not his ways to man. So um, if you want to say that, they're, that what's being um, justified are God's ways to men, then you're saying, so there's a long part of the story here which is not necessarily about God's justice. And that should perhaps clue you in to the question, is God actually just to the fallen angels, if you read it that way? Um, are you looking skeptical? or No, there's, I just like, don't know that much about like, the whole biblical side of it. It's hard to put it all together in my head. Okay, well, the whole biblical side of it is very short. Um, and what Milton is doing is, is he's like spending seven weeks on Genesis, which you could do in a week. Um, but, it, but when you say you don't know much about the biblical side, do you mean about Satan or about Adam and Eve? Or, or both? Okay, so, all right, so here's the quick story. God creates um, humans. Um, Milton does it as he creates Adam and then he creates Eve. This story gets told later on in Paradise Lost. Um, what happens in epics in general is that um, we start, we plunge in medias res. Um, that's the fa Horace's um, famous formulation. Has everyone heard that? That you plunge right into the midst of things. It's like the beginning of a James Bond movie. Um, you, the, the first shot that you see is action. Stuff is happening. Um, the beginning of, of um, The Matrix also. Um, Trinity is running and a garbage truck is coming at her and you have no idea what's going on but it's action and within five or ten seconds you're riveted um, and that's how you're supposed to start an epic is plunging in medias race some people <laughs> this is going to be my last little bit of um, pedantry but you know why else did I do all this studying some people will tell you that um, epics begin in medias race but they don't because as Rachel will remember from her Latin, they begin in medias, in mediis rebus. That's the correct Latin. So if anyone ever tells you a story begins in medias race, it means that their Latin is bad. So that's another, that's a thing you can, again, snark, possibility of snark. I'm t this is basically, education is possibilities of snark on your part. Um, so here's another one. Um, so you plunge in medias race, plunge right into the middle of things. And um, then what epics will do, what happens in the Odyssey, what happens in the Aeneid, um, this isn't invariable, but it's, it's a good um, uh, structure, and Milton follows this structure, is you get flashback. How did we get here um, into this exciting beginning? What led up to it? What caused it to happen? Um, this is also something that will fit in with the idea of invocation. That is, when you ask someone to tell a story, whether you're an epic poet or a, or a two-year-old child, the way, the handle that you have on the story is the exciting part. You know, tell me again the story about how the wizard was turned into um, a frog, um, but then um, whatever. Um, and 
that's not the beginning of the series of unfortunate events that caused the wizard to turn into a frog. Um, it's rather, well, I mean, just think of Harry Potter. Harry Potter starts out orphaned. Um, or think of the Baudelaire children. They start out orphaned. Um, and later we find out how they got orphaned, um, but they start out in trouble. And the idea is that when someone wants to know what a story is, they describe the trouble, the excitement. So when you ask the muse to tell you a story, you say, you know, tell me that story about how Aeneas was struggling, being, being blown off course by a storm, and went to Carthage and met Dido, and then eventually founded Rome. Um, but when you say, tell me the story about how Aeneas was blown off course, and there were storms, and, the, and Juno was so angry at him, and the god of the winds um, was, was um, doing her bidding, and he lost all these ships, and so on. Um, that's right in the middle of the story. But then later on in the story, there is a moment where we get flashback. How did we get to that? The muse gives us, or the invocator to the muse gives us the flashback. So in, in, um, in the Odyssey, in the Aeneid, in Paradise Lost, that flashback comes through storytelling. That is a character in, um, in the Aeneid and in the Odyssey, the character is the main character tell someone the story of how they got to the situation that they're now in. Um, in Paradise Lost, um, it's partly Adam tells that story, and partly the archangel Raphael tells that story when Adam <coughs> says, what's going on? Raphael says, here, I'm coming to visit you. I've got stuff to tell you. It's really important. You should know that there is someone who dislikes you named Satan, and um, here's why. Here's what happened. And then we get the story of the war in heaven, whose outcome Paradise Lost begins with. That is that Satan and his followers have just plunged from heaven to hell, where they find themselves chained to a, a lake burning with liquid fire. And um, it's then later in Paradise Lost that Raphael will come down and tell them how that happened, what the war in heaven was like, how the war in heaven lasted for three days, um, what happened in the battles. And that's Paradise Lost um, channeling the Iliad, um, which also has many, 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 many days of battle in it. Um, and then it does some more battling. Um, so we get that battle within um, uh, in heaven, and that's, that's done via flashback. So the story that we get in Genesis is simply that God creates Adam and then decides that Adam shouldn't be alone and he creates Eve by taking a rib out of Adam's side and um, making, of, making of a part of Adam a helpmeet or a helpmate for him and they become the first couple. And um, God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat of uh, the fruit of any tree in this wonderful garden that I'm putting you in called the Garden of Eden, um, except this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you can't eat because if you do, you'll die. And so one day Eve is walking in the garden and a talking snake says to her, not in parcel tongue, but in Hebrew, yeah. um, says to her, um, hi Eve, and she says, how come you can talk? And he says, well, I ate this fruit. And it was amazing. Um, I learned to talk. And Eve 
um, says, really? And, and the serpent says, yes. So Eve tries the fruit. And um, then she feels that she knows things. She gives the fruit to her husband, Adam. He eats also. And they become aware, and this is crucial, they become aware that they're naked, um, which they were before. They just didn't think about it. So then God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And he's looking for Adam and Eve, and he doesn't find them. And he says, where are you? And um, Adam says, I was ashamed and hid myself. And God says, who told you you were naked? And did you eat the fruit? And Adam says, yes. And um, God is not happy about this. Um, it's actually the Lord, I should tell you, um, is not happy about this. And um, he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. He punishes Eve with the um, with difficult childbirth and says women from now on will um, labor in labor. That is that um, you will give will give birth in travail, which is a word that means labor. Um, men will get their living by the sweat of their brow. They'll no longer just be able to relax. Um, and live happily, but will have to work um, and get their living by the sweat of their brow. And the woman will bruise the serpent, and the serpent will bruise the woman. Um, and the serpent will no longer have legs, but will go crawling on the ground. So three people or three entities get punished. The serpent, um, uh, men, and women. And the punishments are related, but different, but all three are punished. So that's the story in Genesis. The other stories follow, but that's the story of how um, we get kicked, we or our ancestors get kicked out of the Garden of Eden into Waltham. Um, I mean, basically, this is how Waltham came to be. Um, and um, Nothing in Genesis, nothing in the um, first five books of the Bible, very little in the Old Testament says anything about Satan. Um, and who Satan is, Satan is really a New Testament. Satan that, the Satan that we know is a New Testament figure. That is the prince of devils and so on. There are uh, moments where Satan or someone like Satan is mentioned in the Old Testament. Um, but the word Satan, the name Satan, means anyone know? No, Lucifer means carrier of light. Satan, the adversary? Satan is an Aramaic word which means adversary. And he appears most in the book of Job where he says um, to God, uh, you really humans are terrible, and God says, oh, Job isn't, and Satan says, that's because you're so nice to him. Um, so Satan is essentially the advocate's devil, or the devil, I mean, he's, he's really the devil's advocate in the sense that he's, he's the prosecutor of human beings um, in the Old Testament. Um, he's, so he's, he, he hates us, or it feels like he hates us. Um, he's our prosecutor. Um, but he's not the king of uh, the devils. There are other characters, other figures in the Old Testament who might be. Um, but the idea of Satan as we know it in our culture is a New Testament idea. Now, it's partly a New Testament idea because, remember, we talked about typology. Um, and we talked about how Old Testament ca characters and figures and so on return in the New Testament as their fulfillment, prefiguration and fulfillment. So remember Moses striking the rock so the water comes out, turns into the Roman soldier. Yeah. 
Okay, the Roman soldier striking Jesus on the cross in the side and water comes out of his wound. So there are lots of Old Testament stories that are prefigurations or types of their New Testament fulfillment or anti-types. So lots of stuff happens in the Old Testament that returns in somehow in its truer form in the New Testament. Um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which causes our death, what do you think um, that returns as in the New Testament? Death cause, yes, say it again. The cross. The cross, yeah. So the tree of knowledge of good and evil turns into the cross um, and um, as a bringer of death, as a, as, um, a tree-like structure that brings death. Um, so there are lots of these connections made between Old and New Testament stories. Some are made by the actual New Testament writers, and then some are the clever interpretations of later people. But there are connections made between the Old and New Testament stories. Jesus himself makes one of those connections when he calls Satan a serpent. He says, you are that old serpent, Satan. And what that's always and, and almost certainly rightly taken to mean is that Jesus or the New Testament writers are saying the serpent that's, that, that um, tempted Adam and Eve was actually Satan. Um, it wasn't just that there was this you know, um, evil snake um, because God created all the animals as good. Um, so there's this one animal that did evil, but it's because it was actually Satan in disguise. So that's the New Testament version is that the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve to their downfall was Satan. Then there are lots of New Testament accounts of why Satan fell, and Milton is taking all these, that Satan was the here the light bearer, the second in command of heaven, the greatest of the archangels. Um, but then one day he said, I can no longer tolerate not being number one. I shall not serve. That's his famous statement, non serviam, I shall not serve. And um, when he rejects the power of God, the authority of God, he falls. Um, different versions of the fall, but Milton writes his own, which is that there's a three-day battle in heaven. Um, and after the three-day battle in heaven, Satan and his... Um, Minions are defeated, and that's the beginning of Paradise Lost is when they find themselves in hell. <clears throat> so the point is that the question, if Milton is justifying the ways of God to men, then he doesn't have to justify the ways. If that's his brief, he doesn't have to justify the ways of God to Satan. Um, God can be totally unjust when it comes to Satan. God can be totally unjust when it comes to cockroaches. Um, the only thing that matters as far as we're concerned, it doesn't mean he is unjust, but it means he can be unjust without Milton um, getting into that argument, that question, is God just or unjust to other beings, other sentient beings, assuming that justice is a question of sentience, is God just or unjust to other sentient beings um, than humans. And so he will, th so if he says, I have come to justify the ways of, I've come to justify this thing, namely the ways of God to man, then that's all he has to do. But 
The question is, who decides whether Milton has succeeded in justifying the ways of God to men? And the answer would mean something like any impartial, intelligent um, uh, entity capable of judgment, capable of impartial judgment. Um, so what that would mean is angels would agree after reading Paradise Lost that God's way to men was just. Devils, if they were honest, would agree that God's ways of treating men were just. Um, all beings on other wor in other worlds, which is something that Milton thought about, as Dunn did, would agree that God's ways to men were just. He made it may have been bad towards other creatures, but we all agree that his ways to men were just. And that's an abstract principle of justice um, that would apply to men no matter whether other beings are treated justly by gods. The other possibility is that all of God's ways are just. And there is one set of beings that Milton is interested in proving <coughs> that to. And the implication would be that he could prove it to anyone capable of the judgments that one set of beings is capable of making, namely us. So Milton might be saying, I am coming to justify the ways of God, and men are capable of evaluating the argument about all of God's ways, the ways he treated Satan, the way he treated the serpent, the way he treated Earth herself, because Earth feels the wound when Eve plucks the apple, the way he treats chaos and old night, the way he treats sin and death, who are allegorical characters here, all <coughs> of the ways that he treats all of these sentient beings, every single way that he has is just. And humans are capable of seeing that, of judging God, or of judging the question, does God behave justly? And that puts, that gives a whole lot more dignity to human beings as capable of judging God than the first reading, which simply says, he treated us right, now shut up. Anyone can see, or anyone capable of seeing, which might not be you, but anyone capable of seeing it can see that he treated us right. Um, so one puts humans in the um, jury box. We get to decide whether God was just. So men, it is two men that Milton justifies all of God's ways. And the other puts God, God's ways up for judgment by those capable of judging whether he's just or not, which we may very well not be. And anyhow, not whether he's just overall, but just how he treated us. So the other one is, look, smarter, smarter entities than us think that God treated us fine, and so we have no right to object. Um, and 
Milton is raising that as an issue. Are we judges or are we victims? Or at least um, subjects of God's action. How should we think of ourselves as judges or as subjects of God's action? And that ambiguity there is an ambiguity just about that question. Now, if it matters, Milton returns to this formulation in his last great work, which is, um, I already mentioned it to you, a closet drama that is a drama not meant for performance, although he imagined it could be performed. Um, but I have to say it's not, it's not an edge-of-your-seat kind of thing. <laughs> um, but a closet drama called Samson Agonistes. That is Samson um, in struggle. And um, it's a story, it's a biblical story of Samson, which... Um, I'll remind you is that Samson is the hero of the of the children of Israel. He's a judge of the Israelites, a hero of the children of Israel, but he gets seduced, much as perhaps Adam does, by the Philistine um, woman, Dalilah, as Milton calls her. We call her Delilah, but Milton is using um, a different pronunciation of her name. Um, and um, she gets him to tell her how he can be defeated, which is, anyone? To cut his hair. hair. Cut his hair. Um, also to drink. He's not supposed to drink either. Um, and she tells the, the Philistines how to defeat him. They do defeat him, and he is blinded and set to work and Im imprisoned and enslaved and blinded. Much like, blinded, much like, Gloucester? <laughs> yes, very much like Gloucester. He is blinded like Gloucester, leaving him blind like Milton. Milton. <laughs> Good. And um, which, is, which means that there's some, some strong um, sense that Milton has of um, Samson's experience. And one of the things that Samson does in the play is to, um, he, has a, he has a long um, soliloquy where he says, why was, the, why was sight confined um, to such a tender organ as the ball, by which he means eyeball. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, he, and he goes on, I mean, an extraordinary complaint against blindness, dark, dark, dark amid the blaze of noon, he says. It's all darkness. But anyhow, as he is imprisoned, by the Philistines, and, and he's their slave, his hair starts growing back. That's the famous Samson story, is that his hair grows back over the months of his slavery. And then the Philistines want to bring him to a celebration to their idol, to whom they worship, um, in order to show how they've humiliated this quondam um, hero of the Israelites. So they bring him to this great theater where um, they're going to make fun of him and ask him to um, basically perform for them. And um, they set him between two pillars, which is stupid, um, because they're the pillars that are holding up the entire fabric of the theater, of the building that they're in, of the arena that they're in. And Samson um, knocks them down, killing himself and everyone in um, audience. So the Philistines are defeated on Samson's last, um, in Samson's last action. 
and it's a very troubling story. It's a story that you learn, you know, if you learn it, you will frequently learn it in childhood. And it's, oh, Samson, hooray, he's so great. It turned out that he, he was even more heroic in death than any time before that. It looked like he was defeated, but he came back. Um, if you first come upon it as an adult, it looks like a story justifying terrorism, suicide, um, uh, suicide terrorism. And it is quite a disturbing um, story if you think about it that way. Um, at any rate, um, in Samson Agonistes, in that um, play slash drama um, by Milton, the chorus has a choral ode, um, which you're familiar with from Aeschylus and Sophocles, right? Um, someone else take, I think there were two of you who were taking, is that not, are you the only person in this class taking um, Kim Woman? Okay. Well, so choral odes is the chor choruses basically in Greek tragedy, not always, but often, tend to be the um, don't make any more trouble um, group. They're basically, here we are in a tragedy, things really suck, um, let's just keep our heads down. Um, and they don't always do that, but they frequently do it. They're, they're the voice of um, the prudent majority that is, they express how afraid they are of the situation they're in and how you shouldn't make things worse. Um, and um, so they represent kind of anonymous um, risk aversiveness. And the chorus in Samson is a chorus of Israelites who basically they're trying to comfort Samson and to comfort Samson's father um, and Samson and his father are saying mean things about God or about his plans. They don't quite get why God would have done this. And they're saying, no, 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 you know, things are not so bad. Um, could be worse, they're saying. Um, but some of what they say is great. And when Samson finally wins at the end, they celebrate. Um, and their celebration is a choral ode of triumph. Um, and remember the blind Milton, when he writes Samson, has lost everything. Um, he was Cromwell's Latin secretary, he and Marvell both, and then after the restoration of Charles II, Marvell had to rescue him from um, a very good possibility of execution and almost certain imprisonment. Um, and he is left as um, defeated in a revolution in which um, the revolution was defeated, and all its leaders were punished, some executed, and all um, um, removed from any kind of influence or power. And so there he is, blind, and um, as he himself puts it, we'll talk about this on Thursday, um, with darkness and with dangers, compassed round in solitude. Um, and all he can do is work on Paradise Lost, um, which he does in spades um, and um, here is Samson who had been the champion of his people who is now blind and can't do anything but then Samson does more after his failure and his fall and his defeat than he had before and so the, cor the last part of Samson and I see is a choral ode about how um, the winners, the victors, the Philistines, who Milton clearly is thinking of as the restoration of um, English royalty, they're the victors, they're the Philistines. And the chorus um, chants about how when they were jocund and sublime, 
drunk with idolatry, drunk with wine, um, and preferring their idol Dagon before the living God, um, Samson uh, destroyed them. And uh, you can see this as wish fulfillment on Milton's part. You thought you defeated me, but we will come back, um, just as Samson did. At any rate, the, cor- the reason I mention that is to say that the chorus says a lot of authoritative things. It's not just a, it's not just a wimpy chorus, um, but it's a chorus that says authoritative things. One of the things that it says, trying to comfort Samson, is just are the ways of God and justifiable to men. So it's as though Milton wants to make it clear when he writes Samson, having finished Paradise Lost, that in the ambiguous nature of those last lines, I come to justify the ways of God to men, he explains what he means in Samson, that the ways of God are just, just are the ways of God. Not the ways of God to men, but the ways of God are just. Just are the ways of God, and those ways are justifiable to men. So what that means is he is justifying to men the ways of God, which means he's asking you to judge whether he succeeded or not. Is God just or not? Now that's really important because what it means, first of all, is that a question that according to some religious doctrine you can't ask, is God just? Because to ask, is God just, is like asking, is two, two? Is the number two the number two? The idea would be that, of course, God is just, but you don't, there's no information if you say that, because God decides what's just. It's like saying, does the rule book follow the rules? And the answer is, yeah, of course it does. Um, it is the rules. So justice, according to some views, is whatever God says it is. And if God says that it's just to um, eat infants um, alive, then it is. Because Because justice springs from God. God is the origin of justice. Now, um, the fact that we understand that it's not, I hope, we understand that it's not just to eat infants alive. The fact that we understand that um, is because God has determined that it isn't just to eat infants alive. Um, if you can say there's no way that would be just under any circumstances, um, that's fine. God has determined that there's no way that would be just under any circumstances. So if you can say I can't even entertain the idea that that could be just, that's fine too because God has made it the case that you can't entertain the idea that it could be just. Of course it's unjust. God said so. And so it's not um, a complete abdication of judgment to say that that it's because God said that it's unjust that it's unjust. It's an understanding that God created justice in the same way that he created matter. He made things what they are. And if you say, well, but, you know, matter will, 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 make it, will, will, will hurt you if it slaps you in the face, 
Um, that's not God's doing. No, it is God's doing. God was the one who made it that way. Um, and God is the one who made justice what it is. And if God had decided, which we can't think he could possibly decide, but if he had decided that eating infants alive was just, it would be immediately clear to us that it was just. We would immediately see that it was just. Um, and, but he decided it wasn't just. So that's the idea that God is the origin of justice. That's a really important idea for predestination because the question comes up if you're predestined to hell, if God at the beginning of the universe decided that a bunch of unborn, unconceived infants were going to go to hell, that doesn't seem just to some people. The idea of predestination and of the bondage of the will to lots of people doesn't seem just. And we talked about this already. That is that every time Pharaoh wants to let um, the children of Israel go, God hardens his heart and says, you have to stay. <laughs> but then Pharaoh, Pharaoh softens again and says, go. Um, but so 10 times Pharaoh says, go, you can go. And 10 times in the book of Exodus, um, the line is, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he changed his mind. And so that hardly, and then Pharaoh gets really seriously punished for not letting the children of Israel go, even though he keeps trying and God keeps reprogramming him. Um, so the question is, is it right for Pharaoh to be punished when he wanted to let the children of Israel go, but God determined his will so that he wouldn't. If it were up to Pharaoh, they would have gone, but God decided to change Pharaoh's will so they wouldn't, and then he punished Pharaoh. And for Luther, this was an issue. What do we do about that? So Luther said, you know, it's clear there is bondage of the will, that's Luther's phrase. No one has free will. Everything that we do, it, we do it because God makes us do it. And those of us who do evil, God makes us do that evil, and then he punishes us with eternal damnation for the evil that he made us do. And you guys may think that's unjust. And to tell you the truth, Luther says, I don't have a good argument for why that's just. But I know that it is because God did it. And the fact that I don't understand how it can be just doesn't mean that I deny that it's just. In fact, it's not a bug, it's a feature because it just, sh it just shows, it only goes to show how much greater God is than we are because we can't think of any way that that could possibly be just, but God is certainly just, and therefore it's the smallness of our own intellects that is brought home to us. We don't see how it can be just, it is just, therefore we're not very smart. And it's important to see that so that we don't go around giving ourselves airs and being full of pride. So Milton thought that was an ass-backwards 
or Bass-Ackwards um, argument. Milton, unlike most of the Puritans and most of the Protestants of his time, Milton believed in free will, and almost no one else did. In fact, people were being burnt at the stake for believing in free will. Um, Calvin burnt a proponent of free will, one of the founders of Unitarianism, actually, or of the precursor religion to Unitarianism. Um, Calvin had him burnt at the stake for believing in free will. Calvin said, God made you believe in free will, but it wasn't your own choice, but it's evil, so we're burning you at the stake. Um, because God rightly made me decide to burn you at the stake. And so this was a few years before Milton was born, but it was still a live possibility. Milton actually wrote a book called On Christian Doctrine in Latin, um, De Doctrina Christiana, in Latin, that not only did he not publish, but no one would publish for 150 years after his death because it was so radical. It was finally published in Latin in 1825. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, after a semester of this class, you should feel like 1825 was the day before yesterday. I mean, that's like, those are normal people. Um, those aren't, aren't religious weirdos. Those are, those are, that's modernity for you. Um, and it wasn't until 1825 that this book was published. Had Milton published in his lifetime, he would certainly have been executed. Um, but what Milton maintains there more strongly than he does in Paradise Lost, but he maintains it very strongly in Paradise Lost. Milton says a lot of things in De Doctrina Christiana that are um, overtly contrary to, to the doctrine being taught by the church. Um, but among the things he's very clear on there, as well as in Paradise Lost, is freedom of the will. Um, and in Paradise Lost, there's just the slightest hedge, which is you can read Paradise Lost as about how we lost freedom of the will after the fall. We were free until we fell, and after that, our wills went into bondage. Now, you can read it that way. That would be the wrong way to read it, but um, it gives Milton plausible deniability. If people say, but you're going against all church teaching. Look what happened to Michael Servetus. It should happen to you, too. Um, he would say, no, 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 I was just talking about before the fall. But that's just plausible deniability. He's at an absolute believer in what's known as the Armenian heresy, which is the belief in freedom of the will. And um, God himself will say this in Book 3 of Paradise Lost when he comes on the scene, and he explains um, that if humans don't have free will, they couldn't show or if, if angels, as well as humans, didn't have free will, they couldn't show love. Then only what they needs must do appears, not what they would. So if love of God is forced, if you, know, you love God the way you love Big Brother because you're forced to love him, um, and a Big Brother who can um, um, put electrodes in your brain and actually determine what you will think and do and feel. Um, you know, it might be nice. You might enjoy loving God if the electrodes were set up right in your brain. You might think, oh man, I love God and I'm just blissing out in my love of God and it's all great and I'm so glad that I love God. But you wouldn't think that you chose to love God. And if you did think that, it wouldn't be true. 
That is, maybe maybe there'd be an electrode in some cell in your brain which would say, oh, and I am choosing to love God. I'm so happy about that. But you wouldn't be. It would be from these um, 17th century electrodes. Um, so God himself says, I don't want to be loved because of programming. I want to be loved because it's love. And without freedom, there is no love. And that is the thing that's repeated again and again in Paradise Lost. It's the one thing that every intelligent entity in Paradise Lost, every entity that we have any sympathy for whatever, from Satan to God, if we have sympathy for God in Paradise Lost, which is meh, um, but certainly from Satan to the Son of God, for whom we do have sympathy, every being all the way up to God, from Satan to God, there's one thing they all agree on, which is freedom is good. Everyone is on the side of freedom in Paradise Lost. And that's a crucial thing to understand, that Satan is battling on behalf of freedom, that God says freedom is of, of paramount importance, that the Son of God says, I will freely die in order to help these other human beings. That Eve, and this is a part of Paradise Lost we're not going to get to. Um, you would have read it eight times by now if you graduated ten years ago. Um, in Book 9 of Paradise Lost, after Rap the Archangel Raphael has come down and, and told them all the stuff that he's told them, and has also told them um, how angels have sex, um, which is uh, because, because they love each other. And um, he says, what he says to Adam and Eve is, thou knowest, uh, Adam basically says, this is another heresy of Milton's. He says, Eve is, you know, I really like my nights with Eve. She seems to like her nights with me. And Eve confirms that she does. Um, it's really pretty great. And now you're describing what it's like in heaven. And I'm just a little bit worried about coming to heaven because um, we have this great thing that we do on <laughs> earth, which is we love each other, if you know what I mean. Um, what about you guys? And then Raphael blushes. Um, loves proper color, Milton says, but he blushes. And then he says, um, I'm really not ready to go into that. <laughs> Um, but you know that we're happy, thou knowest us happy, and without love, no happiness. So freedom and love go together, so that, that's an important fact. Without love, no happiness. And then he goes on and says a little bit more, and he says, um, and plus, here on Earth, you guys have all sorts of bars to full penetration of each other. Um, skin and bone and integuments and so on. And so even though you can kind of unite, we're made of air. So when we come together, we don't stop at the surface. Um, but I got to go, he says. <laughs> um, and um, then having warned them, that they should be obedient to God because Satan has entered the Garden of Eden. But he doesn't tell them that, which it would have been very helpful for them to know. Um, it's actually quite noticeable that he doesn't tell them that. Um, but warning them to be obedient to God, um, he leaves. And the next day, 
um, Eve says, uh, you know, soon we're going to have children because of all the love that we show each other. Um, soon we're going to have children. Um, and then we're going to have help tending the garden and gardening here. Um, but in the meantime, it's actually a fair amount of work. I love working on this garden. You know, we both love working in the garden. It's really great. But whenever we're together working on the garden, we just tumble into the bushes and, and <laughs> show each other love. And I think that if we're going to actually get any work done before lunch, we should probably work separately. No, she, literally, she says this, or almost literally, right? <laughs> Confirm. She doesn't say if we're going to get any work done before lunch, but she says we should work separately until lunch, um, until our midday meal. So that is literal. So Adam says, wait. I don't think that's such a good idea. You heard what Raphael just said. Um, and um, I think that it would be better for us to support each other. And then she says, oh, so you don't trust me. And he says, no, it's not that, I guess. <laughs> and she says, um, well, if you insist that I say with you, I will. And then he says in an amazingly great moment, um, there's actually... You know how um, academic papers, especially articles, are always a quotation followed by a colon followed by what I'm really writing about? Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, man's first disobedience, colon, um, the theology of, of um, prohibition in Paradise Lost, that sort of thing. You'll find a million. I bet there are five titles that are exactly the same. <laughs> um, I just made that up, but I bet you can find that <laughs> repeated several times. But there is a really great... Um, article called the the quotation part of the article is go quote go unquote and then after the colon it's um, antinomian ideas in paradise law so um, but what Adam says to Eve is go she says okay I'll stay and he says no go thy stay not free absents thee more that is um if you stay because I'm compelling you to, or even because I'm pressuring you to, then you're farther away from me than if you go. Um, you have freedom, too. You have absolute freedom. And um, so there is Adam making his case for freedom. Everyone in Paradise Lost, Eve will as well, every being in Paradise Lost is on the side of freedom. Um, and as I say, that's um, pretty heretical on Milton's part. He has plausible deniability because it's pre-fall, but it's still pretty heretical on Milton's part. So what that means, however, is that the question, can we judge whether something is just or not? Milton's answer is yes, we can. Unlike Luther, who says we can't, Milton says we can. And that's what's going on at the beginning of Paradise Lost, that he's going to justify the ways of God. To whom? To us, because we're capable of judging whether God's ways are just. So the other theory, then, there are two basic theories of where justice comes from, or goodness, or whatever if you're a believer in God. And one is, they can both be couched the same way. Whatever God says is good is good, 
whatever God says is just is just, those theories, nevertheless, those sentences are ambiguous. Because what it can mean is God being God, if he decides something is good, it's good. He gets to choose. His universe, his rules. And that's just the way it is. And the other way of seeing it is God being God will only do what's good. So in one version, God is the source of goodness. God defines <coughs> and gets to define and gets to stipulate what's good. In the other version, it's there is this thing, goodness, which would be good whether God existed or not. And God being God will always do what's good. Now, the interesting thing about that second view, which is clearly Milton's view, is that if you take it seriously, it means God has no free will. Because God will always do what's good. Now, not literally no free will, because he could presumably decide not to do good, but he never would. So God is, in a sense, perfectly predictable because he will always do what's good. If you had enough knowledge, you would always know what God was going to do in any situation because he would always do the right thing. He can't decide what's right. He can only see what's right and do it. And that's Milton's view. Um, so when God doesn't do the right thing in Paradise Lost, or if God doesn't do the right thing in Paradise Lost, um, that's something that we are in a position to decide. So Satan decides that what God is not doing is the right thing, that God is not um, any longer a champion of freedom, that freedom requires rebellion against God. And what makes Satan so heroic a figure is that he prefers freedom to the greatest pleasure that any being in the universe can have, you know, absolute angelic bliss, but at the expense of giving up his freedom. So that when you have some of the um, amazing speeches of Satan, and that's really what to be paying attention to in the first two books of Paradise Lost. If you go to book one, um, line 239, um, Satan and Beelzebub, his second in command, um, after they've l been lying chained to the burning lake in hell, they manage to get to the shore. And this is at line 239. Him followed his next mate, both glorying to have escaped the Stygian flood, that is the liquid fire of the burning lake, which Milton is here connecting to the river Styx in Greek and Roman mythology, both glorying to have escaped the Stygian flood as gods and by their own recovered strength not by the sufferance of supernal power. So the narrator of Paradise Lost, and again, um, when you um, remediate your education by reading Paradise Lost eight times over the next 10 or 12 years, 
Um, one of the things that you should do is think really hard about the narrator, because the narrator is not quite Milton. Um, the narrator is, quote, Milton, unquote. Um, but the narrator is not quite Milton, because the narrator is someone who is learning from the muse as he tells his story. The narrator changes over the course of Paradise Lost. And the narrator who thinks he knows at the start becomes a more subtle and deeper figure in the course of the poem. It's a fascinating thing about Paradise Lost is that Milton makes the narrator a kind of character as well. Um, he stands for us, so it makes sense that as he finds things out, as he learns things, as the story is brought home to him, he will understand things he hasn't started out understanding. But it's important to see that, that Milton's narrator, though he sounds authoritative, um, often isn't, and will sometimes concede that he isn't. Um, actually, I told you about that. <laughs> I just remember this. I told you about that article that, that is simply called Go, um, and then blah, 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 subtitled blah, 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 blah. Um, so I once wrote, um, I once gave a paper called Perhaps. Um, <laughs> And that's also an amazing word when it appears in Paradise Lost in um, Book 11. Um, because the narrator is suddenly saying, or not suddenly, but it's a place where the narrator says, I just don't know. Um, and for this narrator to say he doesn't know, that charts a huge um, change in what he's like over the course of the power. And what he doesn't know is what becomes of Eve. Um, and that's an amazing thing for him not to know. Um, he has a guess, perhaps. <coughs> the whole line is the wide encroaching Eve, perhaps. Um, but he doesn't know. So here, Satan and Beelzebub get to land, and then Satan begins one of his first great speeches. Is this the region, this the soil, the climb, said then the lost archangel, this the seat that we must change for heaven, this mournful gloom for that celestial light. So is that the trade that we have to have darkness visible serving only to discover sights of woe instead of that celestial light? Readers of the Intimations Ode by Wordsworth greatest poem of the last 209 years, um, will recall that that poem begins, there was a time when every meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. Milton in the Invocation of Book Three will also refer to celestial light, the light of heaven, but here there's only darkness as in the darkness that Milton himself is living in. So is this the region, this the soil, the climbs, and then the lost archangel? This the seat that we must change for heaven, this mournful gloom for that celestial light? Be it so. So those three words are about as amazing as three words can be. He's not objecting. He's affirming. Be it so. Even better than Jean-Luc Picard's Make It So. <laughs> Be it so. 
since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right, farthest from him is best. Whom reason hath equaled, force hath made supreme above his equals. So notice that's exactly what we were talking about. Since he who now is sovereign, he's defeated us. He's number one. Since he who now is sovereign can now dispose and bid what shall be right. That is God. Okay, now we're in a situation where God can decide what's right. Might makes right. And if that's so, if he gets to call all the shots from now on, then farthest from him is best. You want to be as far from him as possible. That's where true goodness is. Good, better, no, best. Farthest from him is best. Him whom reason hath equaled. We are his equals in reason. By our reason, by our own thought, by our own judgment, we equaled him. Force hath made supreme above his equals. He's won by force, not by reason, not by right. So farewell, happy fields where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors. Hail, infernal world. And thou, profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. So whatever God does to the external world that I live in, it doesn't matter. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. What matter where if I be still the same and what I should be? All but less than he whom thunder hath made greater. Here at least we shall be free. So there's that freedom again. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. So that's putting freedom above all else, which is what Satan is doing. And then if you go on a little bit just to see why you would think that Satan is the hero of Paradise Lost. And what I want to say is it's not the other fallen angels. That is, the other fallen angels on the whole are not particularly pleasant or good or noble figures. Um, Beelzebub, maybe a little bit, but mainly the other fallen angels are, you know, greedy and, um, I mean, when, when they're talked about individually, they're greedy, um, they're self-serving, they're self-righteous, and so on. However, when they're talked about as groups, sometimes not. For instance, some of what they do is they go off, we're not going to talk about this now, but um, they, um, some sing songs, sing epic poems about um, how terrible it was that they lost their battle. Um, and their songs are so beautiful that all of hell is silent to listen to um, 
the enchantment of their songs. And then the narrator says, God, I don't know about that. Um, it must be that they're, that they're heavenly spirits, so that even though they're in hell, they sing really, really beautifully. Um, if you've read Neverwhere, the Neil Gaiman novel, no? Uh, gotcha. You have read it? Okay, so the angel in Neverwhere um, is gorgeous that way and for the same reasons. Spoiler. Um, in, um, but then others who are deeper, says the narrator, go off and find some veil. Remember, this is a veil burning with fire under, under a burning sky, and burning air everywhere. And um, they charm their senses. They, they uh, distract themselves from pain because the fallen angels are in incessant, horrendous pain. But they never talk about it. They're courageous enough never to talk about it. But what they do is they talk about philosophy. And they talk about free will, fixed fate, foreknowledge absolute. How can there be free will if God knows what's going to happen, if God has foreknowledge? God is going to deal with this question also in Book 3 of Paradise Lost. Um, and they argue the question, is there free will if God has foreknowledge? And um, so what they do in hell is they have a philosophical debate. That's what they do in hell. But then this amazing passage, all the fallen angels, the largest number of um, the largest military power ever assembled, go to find Satan. He looks at them all, and then this is at line 590. There's a long description of all armies from all other stories. Um, actually started 574, for never since created man met such embodied force. As named with these could merit more than that small infantry warred on by cranes. Though all the giant brood of Phlegro with heroic grace were joined that fought at Thebes and Ilium on each side mixed with auxiliary gods. So if you took all the armies of all the stories of all the myths and legends and epics of human history and put them all together, they'd be smaller than this army. So the armies that fought at Thebes, the seven against Thebes, or Ilium, that is in the Trojan War, um, and all the armies of King Arthur, and all the armies of the Song of, Ro of Roland, and all of them, they'd be nothing. They'd be pygmies compared to this army. That is that, the, that small infantry warred on by cranes. Thus far these beyond compare of mortal prowess, yet observed their de dread commander. So they're all silent looking at Satan. He above the rest in shape and gesture proudly eminent stood like a tower. His form had, not, had yet not lost all her original brightness. So this description of Satan in hell is he's still bright. His form had yet not lost all her original brightness, nor appeared less than archangel ruined and the excess of glory obscured. So amazing description of Satan. He doesn't look like a devil. He looks like a ruined archangel, which is something very different. He appeared no less than archangel ruined and the excess of glory obscured. As when the sun new risen looks through the horizontal misty air, shorn of his beams, 
So not as bright as he was in heaven. He's like a rising sun. Or from behind the moon, in dim eclipse, disastrous twilight sheds on half the nations with fear, and with fear of change perplexes monarchs. So he's the sun, darkened, but still the sun. Darkened, so yet shone above them all the archangel. And now just, do we have a minute? Because this is so great. We do. Um, notice the enjambments here, and notice all the adversative words, but and yet, that we're going to get here. Yet shown above them all the archangel, but his face deep scars of thunder had entrenched, and care sat on his faded cheek, but under brows of dauntless courage and considerate, pro re and considerate pride waiting revenge, cruel his eye, but cast but cast signs of remorse and passion to behold the fellows of his crime, the followers, rather. He knows it was his doing. Far other once beheld in bliss, condemned forever now to have their lot in pain, millions of spirits for his fault immersed of heaven and from eternal splendors flung for his revolt, yet faithful how they stood. So they're still faithful. And then that last enjambment, their glory withered. So they've lost their glory, they're ruined, they're shorn, they're eclipsed, and yet they're faithful. And that's an extraordinary description. And if you think, oh yeah, I'm not taken in by that, I'm C.S. Lewis, um, then you're missing um, the power of Paradise Lost. Okay, see you guys Thursday. What you should read after you finish book two, again, is read the invocations to book three. The invocations are the first paragraphs of the following books. Book three, I'll send an email. Book, book, book three, book four, book seven, and book nine. So that's about, that'll be a total of about 200, 250 lines. Invocations, maybe a little bit more, maybe 400 lines. Um, invocations to three, four, seven, and nine. Come to the creative writing readings in uh, today. Minute, 5 30.